welcome to The Progression Puzzle, the podcast that provides you with invaluable pieces of career wisdom brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. I'm your host, Michael Barrington Hibbert, and across the podcast, I'll be speaking to a variety of esteemed leaders, thinkers, and inspiring figures from the world of finance, banking, professional services, and beyond to understand how their progression puzzles have pieced together. From words of wisdom to pointers on progression, we'll be equipping you with the skills, practices, and learnings necessary, not only to navigate corporate environments, but to thrive within them and ultimately pursue your professional goals. My guest today is Damian Horner, founder of Real Vision, a financial multimedia company that was created to demystify the world of finance, business, and the global economy. Damian's career spans decades and disciplines from advertising to publishing. He's been named one of the 100 most influential people in media, worked on a campaign with Damien Hurst that was exhibited at the Tate Modern, and developed award-winning gaming app. In the midst of all of this, he's even found time to spend a year traveling through the French canals to Spain with his young family on a wooden boat. Along with his wife, he wrote and published a book about their experiences. Damien will be telling us all about what Real Vision stands for, staying motivated, why he doesn't believe in being busy for busy's sake, and much, much more. Welcome. Lovely to have you, Damien. Nice. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm glad it's here because it's your place. Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah, it's our <laughs> studio, yes. Right. So can you just tell me what Real Vision is yep. and also what your role is in the organisation? Sure. So uh, it's, we work within the financial services industry. And uh, if you work within finance, even if you don't, the way that whole industry works is it's very hierarchical and it's very much about privileged access to information. Right. And so basically, the bigger you are, the richer you are, the more privileged access you get to ways of making money, ways of getting information that help you stop losing money. Mm -hmm. um, so to take you back to one of the, the things that really drove the, the founding of Real Vision was in the 2008 crash. My co-founder, Raul, was advising billionaires and they were looking at stuff that said, there's going to be a crash, get out or change your investment models. And they did. And you know, one of his, one of the people he works with, made a billion dollars in one trade over that period. Fascinating. They just got out at yeah. the right time. Meanwhile, we were living in Spain, carnage. Mm. I mean, just devastation. Thirty-six percent unemployment. It was hell. And it just felt wrong that some people knew what was happening, had the inside track, and other people didn't. Mm -hmm. So, our whole kind of raison d'etre is democratizing information within the world of finance, so that. It's a level playing field, and we do that through a video channel, an online video channel. You pay a subscription, and then you can see the world's greatest minds in finance telling you what they think is happening and how you can maybe uh, act accordingly. Are you trying to put more quality into the ecosystem from a financial y services yes, standpoint? Absolutely. It, it, it's a world of closed oak paneled boardrooms and closed doors where if you're not inside that room, you are very much on the outside and you're being fed uh, a stream of kind of PR announcements, but that's not exactly what's going on. And what we do is we get behind that, uh, behind that veil mm -hmm. and tell people what's actually happening. 
So we discussed, or I, I mentioned in the introduction, working with Damien Hurst. How yeah. do you move from um, writing a book, being one of the top yeah. most influential people in media, to co-founding Real Vision? So you've, you've given me the understanding in terms of the foundations, sure. but what actually is your role within the organisation now? The question that everybody in my organisation asks. Uh, so I think that uh, what the thing that the consistent thread through my career is that um, I like ideas. I right. I'm driven by communication and the, the communication of ideas that will help influence the way people think and help shape the way they think. So I started in psychology, that's where, where, what I studied. I moved into advertising, which is the process of communication and obviously you need psychology to do that. Through the advertising, I got into uh, the book industry, which mm. is very much about narrative and storytelling and sharing ideas in very long form. Uh, that led to gaming and developing a number one gaming app, as you mentioned, uh, which was a kind of a football narrative game. Working with Damien Hirst was part of that journey. Worked with Universal Records, working with people like the Rolling Stones and okay. other bands. So it's, to me, it's all about communication. And to communicate effectively, you have to understand what you want to say, but you also have to understand the audience and what they're thinking and how you get them to think, to, to make the journey from A to B in terms of their learning. So talking about A to B, mm. you were born, bought, brought up in Leeds, I understand. Yes. Yeah. Went to a local comprehensive. Yeah. Council House outside Leeds. One Council of, House outside Leeds. One of four siblings. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk to me how someone from from Leeds, yeah, working class environment, yeah, has that career trajectory from advertising Damien Hurst, yes, to to leading. So I think my parents, you know, they're they're both from Yorkshire, and I remember as a kid them growing up and saying, "Don't have a Yorkshire accent." Don't don't speak with a Yorkshire accent. So I don't have really. I've got a kind of a neutral accent. I use flat vowels, like I say, Bath and Grass. Right. But I'm pretty neutral. You know, when I go back home, people think I'm posh. You know, it's that kind of. Right. But they said you'll never get a decent job if you have a Yorkshire accent. It was that era. I mean, now I think it's actually there's almost positive discrimination towards having accents. But in those days, I was very much told you're not going to get on. So I, I, I kind of, and you have to study hard and you have to think big. So I think my parents were a big influence in making me look beyond the, the immediate environment I was in. And um, I, I have one ability, I think, which is I can think a little bit outside the box, right. just a little bit differently to normal. And weirdly, that's a skill. If you just keep applying that, it's amazing how far you can go because most people do what everybody else does. And so that's been my, my, my ticket out, I think. But how did you survive in that context? You mentioned growing up in Leeds and yeah. thinking slightly outside the yeah. box. Yeah. Was, was school a happy time for you, Damien? I remember, <laughs> no. I remember uh, we'd just moved into, the, we'd lived in Canada for a while. We moved back to this council house in, just outside Leeds. And I remember, um, it was one of those where you have the 50p put into the meter for the gas. Mm. And our neighbours said, oh, actually you can freeze they had a, a template, you can freeze up water to make ice, ice versions of 50Ps, and they okay. sometimes work in the meter. So I mean, it was that kind of environment, wow. and I remember the, some kids came around, the local gang, there's about eight of them. Mm. Scary, scary kids, Dot Martins, Harrington Jackets, which is very much of that era, shaved heads, and they knocked on the door and they said, we're going out packy bashing, do you, do you want to come with us? And I remember sat there, Terrified. I was terrified of them. 
the whole concept of going out and, and some kind of racist rampage mm. was very normal. I mean, that's what they did for an evening. It was normalised, yeah. For me, it was not something that you did. You know, right. I said, look, no, I'm not. That's not that's not me. I'm not interested in that. But I think that was my second or third night there, and that was it. I was just written off from that point onwards. So going home or going to school was all, and of course they're at school as well. I had lots of fights, lots of times I was, because no one picks a fight unless they think they're gonna win. Mm. So it was never a one-on-one, -on -one. it's always two-on-one, three-on-one, so I had a lot of fights, a lot of, um, a lot of bullying, basic physical bullying, right the way through to upper six. So, you know, I had my friends and I had, I had happy times, mm. but I had a lot of fear over that period because I wasn't, I didn't fit in. How old were you when that incident happened? Uh, I think I was 14. Four, 14, 14 years um, of age. Yeah. So what that demonstrates to me is having that strength of character. Yeah. To be able to walk away it, from the crowd. Yeah, it's, it's, there, was a, there was a moment before then when we were in Canada where my mum and dad, we, you know, we had no money. And my mum was uh, a bit of a hippie and she was learning about weaving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for my Christmas present that year, uh, they, my mum and dad gave me um, some plastic skis. They were kind of toy skis about that long, where you, you had string and you tied them around your Wellington boots. <laughs> okay. So everyone else is there. And this is going somewhere. Everyone's yeah. there with their Solomon and their Rosignols, and I had my yeah. plastic skis that you just tied on with string. And I got, my mum gave me, and the other present I got was a wooden loom. Not the kind of present that a lot of 13, 12-year-old kids, boys have. Mm -hmm. It's got a wooden loom and some wool. I loved it. And I made a belt myself out of wool. <laughs> I remember, you know, after after Christmas, going to school, and everyone's wearing their new trainers and their new Timberlands, and uh, I say it was in Canada, it's very uh, kind of North American high school like yeah. you see on TV. Yeah. And I turn up with a woolen, woolen belt, Brilliant. gold and green wool belt that I'm super proud of. As you can imagine, I got shredded. Well, I your mean, production staff are actually laughing oh behind my, the screen honestly, right I now. Got, so. I got killed. I got killed <laughs> by the kids in my school. Right. And, I, and I wore that and I, and I thought, OK, tomorrow I either don't wear this and all of that kind of piss taking has succeeded mm. or I wear it again. You double and down. I, and I double down and I wore it. It gives me I'm getting kind of yeah. a bit shaky actually remembering it. And, um, and I wore it again and again, and to the point where nobody commented on it more. And I just remember thinking, I have to stick to what I want, even though I hated it. Mm. I, wasn't pr I, wasn't, I was no longer proud of my belt, and funny enough, I've still got the belt, and I've actually given it to my, one of my daughters as a, as a symbol of strength, strength fortitude. independence, fortitude, yeah. you know, n double down if you need to. Mm. So I think those little moments in your childhood do become um, anchor points for your personality and how you're going to approach things in life. I was given a book by my dad about posters, 100 years of posters, propaganda posters, advertising posters, um, political posters, and I just, I was 11. I remember being at the dining room table looking at this book. I've still got it. And just thinking, wow, A, they were a beautiful piece of design, but B, the way one image and a few words can change the way somebody feels about something. I just thought that was extraordinary. And that's what got me into psychology. And I just remember at that table, at 11 year old, as an 11-year-old thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to do this.
So at 15, I was going to the local advertising agencies in Leeds and wow. finding out about how do I get in. Okay. You know, from then on, everything I did, my psychology degree, my thesis was, a, was an experiment about um, advertising posters and how they influence you in different ways. You know, mm. I was just super focused, super focused. So you had that intention oh. at 11, 11. 15 yeah. years of age. I mean, a lot of kids, you know, my kids included, say, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't, mm. know, where, I don't want a job. I, know. I was from 11, bang on, absolutely focused. So talk me through after 18, yeah. getting your A-levels. Yeah. Where did you go to university? What were the steps in terms of, <laughs> did you want to get far away from Leeds? So, yes. So I want to get as far away as I could. So I went to, to Sussex University and they also that's had the best tours. That's pretty far. That's as pretty far, far as I could get, it was yeah. a coast, you know, it's as far <laughs> as I could get. And my mum and dad said, look, we haven't got the money for you to, we can't support you. Hmm. And uh, they also said, and we couldn't get a grant for some reason because we lived in Canada and so we weren't eligible. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. They said, you're going to have to pay for yourself. I said, okay. So I got a job at a school for the deaf um, in Brighton. I was a house father. So basically I lived in a house with, with 10, 17 year old boys and I was the house father. So I used to get them up at seven, make sure they had their breakfast, get them off to school, meet them at break. Uh, get them back into class, meet them at lunch, make their lunch, meet them at four o'clock, homework, make their, di their dinner with, with one of the other house mothers, make sure they were uh, you know, out playing football and stuff, lights out at 10, you know, that kind of thing. So I had a, a full job and I was going to university. So my university experience was not Freshers' Week and parties and wild mm. sex and drugs and rock and roll. Mine was, right, I've got 45 minutes before I've got to be back to make the sandwiches for these kids mm. dinner or whatever it was. So um, I missed you know, most of my lectures, most of my tutorials. I was dragged in after six months and they said, you're never going to get your degree. You, you can't, you're missing far too much. You, you're not going to get your degree. So of course, being me, I thought, right, I'm going to get this degree. Double down. Double down. So I worked like crazy. So I used to work through the nights, minimal sleep to get the degree because it was, this wasn't what I wanted to do, it was a stepping stone, stepping stone, you know? So I worked hard, I mean hard, really hard. And what did you learn about yourself? Because again, you, you escaped Yorkshire. Yeah. Now in terms of that, the personality where you can wear yeah. um, jackets <laughs> like that, did you find your personality starting to form an element of, you know, we've been to Sussex, Aldborough yeah. and Suffolk yeah. as well, yeah. that fresh air, you, you get to Sussex and you think, I don't have this pressure of being in Yorkshire and people having fun, poking fun at my belt, yeah. I can be free and yeah. actually start to grow into your personality. Did you have that element there? No. I w I'd love to say yes. God, I had this kind of renaissance moment in my life. No, I was utterly insecure. Ut and probably still am. And it's only, only now getting to grips with it. It's only when you're older, you start to appreciate your weaknesses and, and, and who you are. So I think I was very much driven by insecurity because of all those experiences masked with confidence you know so uh, I moved schools a lot as a kid you know Canada and, mm. and Yorkshire whatever and so I had lots of those moments where you're dragged to the front of the class it's September the 6th and the teacher says okay everyone um, this is Damien I want you all to be nice to him he's just come from uh, you know the other school da 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 and um, help him settle in Nick can you look after him and everyone's just looking at you and they've all been 
at the school for two, three years. They're all mates. They mm. don't need some other kid and the new kid. And, you know, and he's got a Canadian accent or he hasn't got a full Yorkshire. You know, you're already the outsider. So you, you have to mask that mm. with a kind of a confidence. You can't just collapse. So I think I was actually pretty insecure, masked it with, with this kind of veneer of confidence. And, uh, and that's probably what drove me is this sense of need to, need to achieve more, need to do more, need to get to the next level. So that, that's probably been the engine of my insatiable <laughs> drive to move on. I'm really keen for you, Damien, to sort of fast forward a little bit more because yeah. we've spoken about some of the work that you've done with Damien Hurst, writing yeah. a book. But talk to me about some of the first breaks that you had coming out of Sussex University because in advertising, from my understanding, outside looking in, you know, you advertisers maybe more from a middle class yes, background. very much so. You didn't yes. have that network. No. So how on earth did you oh, penetrate that? Do you know, so I, it helped that I'd studied it, you know, I'd studied advertising since I was 11 years old. So I remember going to one interview and they show you, know, they show you a, a poster or a magazine ad and they say, so talk us through this. You know, what do you think is targeting? What do you think it's about? And I'd been getting Campaign Magazine, which was like the industry magazine for four years. So everyone else is, they're looking at advertising, they might be looking at another career, but you know, they're doing their best. Mm. And I remember sitting down and saying, okay, so this was written by this copywriter, this was the art director, this was the photographer, this was the campaign, I think I knew the client. I mean, I knew that ad because I was in, had been immersing myself. So I think they just sat there in the same way I would have done if I was into you and thinking, crikey, who is this guy's off the scale mm -hmm. interested in this. So um, I think that was my first step. And then I was super lucky on my, well, the agency I really wanted to get into turned me down. And I wrote back and they said, you're too creative for the role I wanted, because okay. I wanted to be a more strategist. Right. And I wrote back to them and said, how can, you, how can you claim to be the great creative advertising agency you are and turn people down for being, yeah. for, for, for being too creative? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And they wrote back and said, okay, you can come in for a second interview. And so, and that's the place that actually gave me the, the, the job that I wanted in the end. So even that was a case of kind of having been turned down, mm. going back, not in an aggressive way or an arsey way, just saying, hang on a minute, I thought you were about this. This is how you present yourself to the mm. world, but you're not But I find that fascinating that as a 21, 22 year yeah. old. Again, we keep mentioning doubling down, yeah. but you having that mental fortitude yes. to actually think that's not quite right. Given the, the, the challenges that you had as a, as, as a child, a high school student, mm. but do you think that was a turning point in your career where after being rejected, you went back and said, look, I want to challenge you here respectfully. Was that the change, the, the, the defining it, point for you? Was, I think it was and just another example on that journey of um, you, you, it's really easy for people to um, do what everyone else does and follow the crowd mm -hmm. and it's the default behavior for, for almost everybody. And it doesn't take much to kind of put your hand up and say, hang on a minute. And then people go, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, that, you know, it, it's, it doesn't take much to disrupt that flow. It's just that people don't, you know, we don't very often. And um, I think that, you know, one of the reasons I fell in love my, with my wife was very early on, we'd be walking along the street and she'd say, oh, let's cross over and walk in the sun. And I'm just thinking of getting to A to B. A to B. Yep. And she's saying, well, look, the sun's on that side of the street. Let's just cross over and walk in the sunshine. It's a small thing. Mm. 
but everyone else is doing what I was doing, just, just channeling up and down the pavement to get to where you want to be and not just questioning that or thinking of a different way of doing it. And so um, I think if you recognise that, actually it's quite easy to move on and move forward and, and to um, get to where you want to be. Do you think coming from a working class background yeah. potentially held you back at the embryonic stages of your career? I used to say, I remember saying really early on, uh, you know, I'm at a posh London ad agency and I get taken out on, at the end of the first week by one of the account directors and going to a lovely French restaurant, lovely, you know, in, in Covent Garden and we sit down and I have never had champagne in my life. Uh, I am super intimidated by this environment. Mm. And the menu comes in, it's all in French. Obviously, it's a posh French restaurant. <laughs> and I look at the starters. <laughs> and I think, oh, I have no idea. And I think, OK, just be confident. Everyone he says, don't try and hide your, don't, don't, there's nothing wrong with being embarrassed or, or not understanding, just, just embrace it. Okay. So I remember saying to, lean forward to this guy, Robert, and saying, sorry, what, what are whores de verve? <laughs> <laughs> and he just looked at me and said, hors d'oeuvres, hors d'oeuvres, Damien. And I just felt so, oh my God, I'm so out of this world. And I think, I used to say things like, you know, we need a really classy campaign for this. And, and I remember someone saying to me, you can't say classy, it's classy, it's classy. Mm -hmm. It's never, classy doesn't even, you know. So I, all, I was always slightly on the edges, mm -hmm. um, but you know, it, it's not, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't some of the kind of the suffering that you might have had as a black person or, mm -hmm. or a woman can have or transgender, it wasn't anything of that order. It was just a slight feeling of being a, an outsider. Um, but I think that was just the rapper around me and the ideas and the thinking mm. and the intelligence was what actually I, I, I felt I should be judged on and that's what I worked hardest on. The first rejection you had from a job and you were <laughs> able to get it in terms of you yeah. being too creative. Yeah. You work in a traditional nine to five. Yeah. Um, when did you realise that perhaps wasn't the, the right fit for you in terms of a day to day? So um, I, I got a very big job offer at a big agency and uh, very flattered and uh, youngest on the board and all of that and I joined and on day two I just thought oh my god this is such a mistake I'm not good in a corporate environment because mm. for me it's all about ideas and ideas you know good thinking is the most important thing in an organization and what I realised almost immediately this place was it's not about good thinking, it's about the internal politics. Consensus driven. Bureaucracy right. and all of that. And I just thought, this is going to kill me. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's no coincidence I left there to, to a startup. But um, it, it was then, that was the first seed of it. And I thought, wow, I'm not good in these, in these big corporate environments. And then we were going to go to, uh, we, we sold out the ad agency that I subsequently set up. And my, we said, let's go away for a year on our boat through the French canals. And Shiv said, um, my wife said, don't take a sabbatical, leave your job fully. And I, wow. and, and I like the idea of a safety net. I liked the idea. You know, and I was offered managing director of Europe at this point. I mean, glorious job, huge prospects. And uh, I remember thinking, 
I quite like to have some safety net because we can't just go off into the unknown with two, you know, a two-year-old and a one-year-old wow. and not have any sense of how we're going to make money pre-internet, mm. you know, thinking it's kind of scary just walking out. And so, but she said, if you, knowing what I'm like, she said, if you take a year sabbatical, after six months, you're going to be starting to think about going back and they're going to be sending you stuff to work on and prepare right. for, and you won't get the most out of it. And I, and I knew she was right. So I ended up handing my notice and it was the leaving party. And I remember someone going to my wife and saying to her, I don't know how you can do this to your husband. At this moment where he's at the absolute, his career is Pinnacle. about to skyrocket yeah. and you're going off with him. I mean, how can you do that with two young kids? And her feeling awful and then me feeling, crikey, am I doing the right thing? But fast forward, we're on the boat trip, we're in Paris, we meet this guy who sold his business and he flies back for board meetings and that's it. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm supposed to be, you know, I'm not quite sure I'm gonna go back to work after you. And he said, why are you going back to work? Why, why would you go back to London and get another job? I said, well, you know, I've got to, I've got to provide for my family. Yeah, and sure. he just said, there are many, many ways you can provide for your family. You don't have to go back to London and pick up that life again. And I, I, I mean, I still remember the guy and thinking, okay, you're right. Actually, you're right. Why, why, why can't I, I, all my career, I'm about thinking outside the box and then here I am doing whatever, you know, I'm, stage, I'm absolutely yeah. doing what I despise. So at that moment I thought, fine, you know what, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll do something different. And uh, it was about eight weeks later, I was in a laundrette in, in southern France, sitting on top of the, the, the washing machine, waiting for the dryer, and I got a call from somebody in a book publisher saying, would I work on this project? It was a, a writer who I'd never heard of called Lee Child, and he got this character called Jack Reacher. Yes. And it kind of, and it wasn't going very well, and they quite like sure, and could I work on it? And, uh, and I remember going back to the boat, and I was in the forepeak of the boat, and I just kind of wrote up this piece, and I think I posted it. It might have been you know, going to an internet cafe. I think I might have found an internet cafe and posted this proposal, this strategy. And that became the bedrock of the, of the Jack Reacher strategy that, that has made it what it is today. And, and the publishers have always been very complimentary about it and its, its role in that process. But it, it, it kind of served for me to think, wow, I'm here in a laundrette in France mm. And I'm still able to work and still able, I mean, now it's very normal, but in those days that was kind of eye-opening. I thought, do you know what? I'm going to, I'll find a way to do this. I love what you said in terms of you and Shiv walking down the street mm. and Shiv yeah. grabs you by the hand yeah. and says, let's walk in the sunshine. Yeah. Where you started to interview, I remember you've spoken to me over a coffee about mm. um, going over to um, Europe and interviewing an architect yes. um, for yes. them. Is that when you started to push the boundaries and started to, I, to really yes. explore well, more? Well, I, um, I think it was two things really. One is that when you are freelancing, and I'm not a very good freelancer, I like mm. a bit of sense of where I'm going because I feel an obligation to provide for my family. I think because of my background, I really want to provide for my wife and kids and, and you know, it's a big yeah, driver. Sure. So I'm not a great freelancer where, you know, you've got to be quite easy going about, oh, I haven't got to work for a month. Oh, well, you know, something will come up. I'm mm. not like that. I'm, mm. I get anxious. So, um, so what I used to do is people would say, I'd do a speech somewhere or a presentation and, and somebody in the audience would come up to me and say, that was really good. Do you want to do... Could you do a talk for us or a keynote? I say, and I would always say yes. 
and then find out what it was. <laughs> and I remember doing some stuff for the, I ended up doing stuff for the European Union, presenting a book prize in five languages, having to speak in five, I mean, Christ, God knows, I can't even remember how badly it went, but I'm sure it went badly. And then someone else coming up to me and saying, that was really good. Would you host, would you moderate a three-day event on architecture and the way the world of architecture is going forward? And you said yes. Of course I said yes. I mean, how, how hard can that be? And then, of course, when you're there, you're thinking, Jesus, I, this is tough. Hmm. But actually, like all things, it generally comes back to, you know, I have this great belief that every business, every sector, every job at the end of the day comes back to the same thing which is it doesn't matter what you're actually doing, at some point you have to pass through the eye of the needle of communicating it to an audience. So if you're a finance company, it doesn't matter how good your fund is, at some point you've got to communicate that fund and its strengths to an audience. And if you don't do that bit right, your business is not going to work. You know, if you're a windsurfer and you've set up a windsurfing or kite surfing mm. school, you can be great, but if you can't communicate what you do and why you're great to an audience, then no one's going to come and use you. So it's so often it comes back to what I'm good at, which is that storytelling, communication, ideas, narrative. And so that's how I've kind of fumbled through my career. So look, Damien, we've spoken an awful lot about Canada, Leeds, Sussex, yeah. how you got into the industry. Yeah. But how do you switch off? How does Damien really switch off? Oh, you know. See, that's the downside. If, uh, if what you're about is ideas, it's not like a nine to five job where you think I've done my job, I go home. Mm. It, it, it's, I, I find it really hard to switch off. And particularly because my, my fundamental belief about uh, creativity is that you have to um, get out of your comfort zone mm. and you have to do things that you don't normally do in order to feed yourself and feed your brain new influences. So when I, you know, I go to New York a lot uh, for our, to our New York office, every time I go, I stay in a different hotel, which means I don't know where I am in New York. I don't know how to get to the office. I don't know where to go and eat. I, you know, everything is difficult. It would be so much easier to have one place that's right next door to the office and go in and I know the restaurants and you it's comfortable. You, sure. But that means I do, I, I slip into a routine and I don't stimulate myself. So every time I go, it's hard, but I'm doing things I wouldn't normally do. I'm eating in places I wouldn't normally eat. I am seeing things I wouldn't normally see. And that triggers ideas. And so if that's the way you kind of construct your life, it's kind of hard. I find it hard to switch off because I've trained myself almost to constantly look for stimulus. So, um, I love sailing. I love. I've got. Uh, you know. Uh, actually, I've got an old boat, old cars. I like restoring things. Mm -hmm. I like bringing things back to life. Um, so yes, I've got this old wooden boat, and I spend most of my time on it. Not actually going out in it, sanding it, <laughs> and varnishing it, right. and making it beautiful. You know. And that's my therapy. It's. It's. Um, I've got a friend who's a psychologist who talks about this kind of repetitive behaviour that's that's not totally switched off but you are slightly distracted. You're slightly having to focus on something. So driving, mm -hmm. you know, a long car journey, which means um, it takes my attention, enough of my attention, that means I can't wander too much, but I can wander a bit. Has this process 
evolved over a period of time. Yeah. Again, it's a, not a yeah. learnt behaviour. No, uh, it's something that's evolved, and I also do think very consciously about how to optimise the way you think, how to optimise your behaviour, how to optimise your ideas. As much as this, this discussion is about career progression mm. and, and balance, it's also about well-being because having that ability yeah. of the ideas and waking up at two o'clock in the morning, yes. Yes. notes, etc., yeah. etc. when do you stop? When do you allow yourself to take some time out, um, spend some good yeah. quality time with the family, yeah. with Shiv? What, what do you, how do you manage that? When do you do that? So we, so we do, um, when I was freelancing, I read a story about a guy who sat down very methodically and worked out all his costs and then added in a bit for clothes and maybe a car and the boiler breaks down or whatever it was and said, right, I need about X to live on each year. And he's a freelancer. Right. So he said, once I've earned X, I'm going to stop working. Which is quite, a, you know, wow. I'm not like that. I would have just thought, no, keep going. Oh, someone offers you a job or a project. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. And he just said, that's all I need. Hmm. So he he so he would sometimes stop in May, sometimes he'd stop in September, but that's how he structured his life. And I thought, wow, wow, I need to think differently about time. So for example, we take I take August off every year. Have done for the last twenty years. Where'd you go? Well, you <laughs> Same know, place? Do you, no, do you no. know what we do a lot of? We've got a camper van. Right. And we go off in our camper van with the kids and we go feral. You know, we just go off wild camping and we do that or we go off in the boat or um, we go surfing but the the point is is there's a reason why most companies only allow you to have two weeks holiday so I, I think what I see a lot of and again I look at the psychologist if you have a week off generally you're ill you know because you're working your body relaxes and you and you collapse and, and, and you don't feel you're still knackered so at the end of the sure. week you don't feel you had a proper break it's been nice mm. Second week, you start relaxing, and that's when your holiday really kicks in. Three weeks, which no company ever allows, and the reason is, in the middle of your third week, you're thinking, why am I working so hard? Why, am I, why aren't I doing this more often? Do you give your staff three weeks off? Obviously, no chance. No, no. Okay. I did try. I did try, guys. I think, I think that actually it's more about the well-being. And then four weeks is, by the time you've done four weeks holiday, you are reassessing your whole life. So, mm. so for me, four weeks is super important. Um, it's a great way of kind of grounding myself and I also think it's really easy in work to think that you are the centre of everything, uh, whether that's for your own ego or to, to, to justify how hard you work and actually if you can be away for four weeks and the company doesn't fall apart then your staff are good, the company's being run well, the processes are right. If you, can, if you go away and, the, and things start to going wrong then you are doing something wrong as a manager. Tell me about your most professional achievement, but also one of the lows. Because again, this is a progression puzzle. Yeah. Um, people yeah. looking from the outside in are seeing this lovely pink jacket and thinking you're a very brave man. Uh, but you've had lots of success. Yeah. But I think what we're really keen to do is to ensure people can actually get a real inside scoop of how you've built success and how you've become resilient. So really keen for you to share some of the, the pitfalls and yeah. some of the successes as yeah. well. Um, I've had lots of sh showy successes, you know, uh, and some of them you mentioned earlier. I think the one of the ones I am most proud of is um, there's a primary school here mm. 
in, in Woodbridge, where we are in Suffolk, yeah. and uh, they have a sign outside and it says Woodbridge Primary School, and they wanted a, 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 a motto. They wanted something to put on there. And if you go around, if you start looking for these, you'll see them outside every school. And 90 times out of 100, it's uh, where, where, where children can achieve their best or be their best selves or all of that, you right. know? And it's all about um, grades and achievement. And, uh, and they said to me, would you help us? Because you worked in advertising, would you help us with this, our motto, our school kind of driving thing? And uh, anyway, blah, 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 we did some workshops and where we came up to was um, Woodbridge Prime School, we teach more than the curriculum. And the reason that's so important to me and why I love that so much is a school job is to help the kid mm. get the best out of themselves. That's their job. So to put it on a, on a thing outside doesn't, doesn't tell me anything more so, than, you know, sure. well, of course you are, that's what you're supposed to do. But what you don't expect from a school necessarily, but what you really want as a parent is that they also teach your child about, as well as you as a parent, values and morals and teamwork. And that's just as important for a parent. And yet in our modern society, it's so swept aside in the race for grades and the race okay. for, for um, success. And it's a different metric for success, but it's super important. And it's one that um, the school really embraced and a lot of what they do is about helping not you just as a child to get great grades, but to be a great person. And so that, and it's still on the primary school outside, just around the corner. I love that. And I've done great TV ads and posters, but, but that, that, that for that's you, the one that gets my heart. There have been failures as well. Please. God, endless failures. I mean, there are specific ones, like there's, there's a script for an ad that I really, regret never got made you know and it's, i still remember the script i still remember who it's for and what what happened in it and it never got made but i think really my that's a small thing i think the things i hate in my career are when when you lose staff i don't like losing staff i don't like it when staff aren't happy i don't like it when they um, feel they need to move in order to achieve something or get more out of mm. their career because I think then when then I'm failing sure I'm failing if, as a manager or an employer if I'm not able to give them that and so uh, it's it's very important for me to try to find ways of, and it's not about money rarely about money sometimes it's about title but that's because they're not you know often they're not feeling rewarded in other ways Engaged, and that's a way yeah. of symbolizing mm. success but they should be feeling success without needing a title but anyway th that aside i think that's that's one of the things and there are one or two people over the years who've who've left who have thought oh, i'm really sad that i couldn't quite make that work um and i take that on myself uh i can still this it actually troubles you now because yeah, i think you're yeah you're really sort of well, recounting you know, because it's a huge responsibility running a company or, or running a team mm. and even if your team is just you and you've got someone reporting to you a junior an apprentice or something it's a and i don't think we take it seriously enough in organizations i would say i think that's a great way to conclude the session damien horner co-founder of real vision thank you so much for your taking the time to be a part of the progression puzzle Thank you for listening to The Progression Puzzle, brought to you by Barrington Hibbert Associates. If you enjoyed this episode, which I truly hope you have, 
please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. For more information on how Barron's inhibitors can help you to maximize the power of difference, head over to www.barrentinhibit.com. Join us next time for more pieces of the progression puzzle.